Very well. Um, welcome. Hello. My name is Alessio Terzi. I'm an affiliate fellow here uh, at Bruegel, and it is my um, pleasure to welcome you to this uh, lunchtime seminar today. Today we are talking about, or we're tackling a topic that is not usually the standard uh, Bruegel's uh, uh, current account deficits or uh, fiscal multipliers, and yet a, a topic that is of great importance, of great relevance, and uh, I believe touches um, a lot of you and uh, everyone uh, within within society. Uh, as uh, as you uh, as you know, we're talking about corruption today. Now, in a way, corruption is a, is an interesting monster in the sense that we read about it. Uh, basically every other day. There is not uh, one newspaper uh, in one country that doesn't touch upon this uh, subject every so often. And we read about infrastructure crumbling uh, because it was uh, poorly um, made. Uh, we read about tax havens, uh, obviously with the Panama Papers uh, clearly mined uh, in these days. Uh, we read spectacular arrests. Uh, now these these are all are all features and men, and much more. Uh, so corruption is in the headlines, as the title of today's session uh, mentions. But what do we know about this? How do we really track uh, and measure uh, what we are talking about? And uh, this measuring point really goes to the heart of uh, of what we do here at Bruegel. Um, because, in a way, our mission statement reads something like improving economic policy uh, with uh, fact-driven um, open research. And this is exactly the point. How much uh, fact-driven research can you do uh, on corruption? This is one of the phenomena that you can't just go on Eurostat and try to download statistics about it, because by definition, corruption uh, is illegal, is underground, and so there are no... Um, obvious, uh, clearly, uh, clear uh, public statistics on this, on this subject. Now, a great merit um, has to go to Transparency International that has uh, tried uh, to assemble a, an indicator which is probably the most famous indicator when, when measuring corruption, which is Corruption Perception Index. You probably see it uh, again on newspapers, on TV. It's, it's constantly uh, constantly mentioned, and uh, it has a great advantage that it allowed uh, cross-country comparisons. It allowed to really bring this topic uh, to people's attention and really give an idea of what we were talking about going beyond just the headlines uh, and the individual uh, cases. Now, while merit has to go uh, definitely uh, to this index, in terms of awareness, it is a subjective index. So there is this idea that because we don't really know how to touch this phenomenon, we ask people. I, I'm, I'm obviously making it much more simple than it is, but effectively you're asking people what is the level of corruption within your country. Uh, again, this, this obviously can have uh, some problems uh, and it can, can lead to, to, to some, let's say, counter Interact, um, intuitive results. Uh, in a way, if if there is a a, um, a scandal, if corruption goes in the headlines, if a government falls 
because of a corruption scandal, will a subjective index move up or down, and should it move up or down? So in the moment in which you're fighting corruption, what is going to be the perception of people uh, of this? And uh, in a way, we are in, uh, in, the, in, in 2016, we are in the era and in the century of big data, and what we are, uh, you might be wondering, what I've been wondering, is whether we can go beyond these, uh, these aggregate indicators and go to a more uh, granular way of measuring this phenomenon of developing indicators that are more objective and that really give us an idea. In a way, knowing the problem and measuring it is the first step in, uh, in fighting it. Uh, and indeed, uh, this has been done. Uh, and we have here uh, two researchers on the panel uh, with me today to um, let's say la creme de la creme of uh, corruption fighting and corruption studying uh, in Europe for sure and uh, um, I'd say um, all over. Uh, the presentation, the first presentation will be given by Alina uh, Munjupipidi uh, and uh, Mihoi uh, Fok Fosekos. I, I've been taught how to say your name, but uh, as an Italian, it's, uh, it's always quite tricky. Uh, I, will not, uh, I will not go uh, very much uh, in the details of their, of their uh, bios, which are available, uh, but Alina is, uh, is undoubtedly a, a, an authority within the field. Uh, we share an affiliation, so uh, with the Herty School of Governance, Hertie School of Governance, which is uh, very well represented because also Mihoi has uh, spent some time there. Uh, so um, definitely an institution that is, uh, is working uh, on these topics. Um, Alina is a professor there uh, and is uh, the chair of the uh, European Research Center for Anti-Corruption and State Building. Uh, Alina has previously spent some time at Harvard, Stanford, Princeton and Oxford, just to mention a few. Uh, a top scholar uh, really in the field. Uh, Mihoi um, holds a PhD from Cambridge and uh, is uh, spending some time at Cambridge at the moment as a postdoctoral uh, research fellow. Uh, and he has uh, collaborated with OECD, with the World Bank, the, uh, RAND Europe, um, and the Ecole Nationale d'Administration. Um, all this to say uh, that uh, these two speakers are, um, are really the people we should be listening to. They've been uh, running uh, huge projects uh, on corruption. And I will uh, then uh, pass, pass it on after their uh, individual presentation to Carr uh, Dolan, um, who's the director of Transparent International here in uh, Brussels, another authority uh, in the field as the organization that has really, uh, is perhaps the first organization that comes to mind to people that want to deal uh, with, these, uh, with these sort of issues. Unfortunately, Carl, uh, you don't have a, a hearty affiliation, but you were nonetheless accepted, uh, <laughs> accepted here uh, as, at Bruegel as a, as a great speaker. Um, Carl uh, holds a, a degree in economics from the uh, University College Dublin and was teaching at uh, Bristol at some point, as now here in Brussels. Uh, without further ado, I leave it to you guys. We will have a roughly a 30-minute um, presentation, and then it will be uh, for uh, Carl to uh, give his remarks. Thank you. Thank you, Alessio, for this very kind introduction. 
and the fabulous publicity for Hertie School. We didn't bribe him to do it. You see, this is out of sheer, sheer conviction. So, and thank everyone. So, let me uh, briefly um, explain what we're going to to show to you today. We are approaching the end of a um, great five years project funded by the. Uh, European Union, actually probably one of the greatest social science projects in monetary terms, a 10 million euro project called Anticorp. The goal of this project, uh, which was uh, managed by DG Research as a framework project, was to uh, assess the current anti-corruption strategies, uh, their effectiveness, and come up with better responses. So this was, you know, planned probably five, six years ago. We got it four years and a half ago. And of course, we didn't plan uh, Swiss leaks, uh, Panama leaks, and all these other leaks. This only happened to, you know, to help us to show the the importance uh, the importance of this topic, which simply, you know, gained in in importance, gained in salience every day as as our project went on. The project is based in over 20 universities around Europe, so it's not dealing with EU alone. Our talk today will focus more on Europe because we have better data from Europe. Europe being quite developed, we managed to have. Uh, access to, to more sophisticated data. But this project actually deals also, we have worked in India, we have worked in Japan, we have worked in Sub-Saharan Africa. So if you look on our website, which is anticorp.eu, you see it up there, uh, you will see quite, um, quite uh, you know, a large variety of, uh, of papers, data, and recommendations from various continents and, and forms of corruption. As a follow-up to this uh, Anticor project, uh, we were also awarded the Horizon 2020 research project, whose name is DG West and which is managed by by Michi, our our Hungarian colleague from uh, from Cambridge. DG West is more focused on procurement and looks at um, uh, procurement data with a very ambitious goal of actually making it all available online, so that we can try our very advanced uh, statistical tools. On them, but as you can imagine, data accessibility is actually one of the main main problems that we are confronted with in um, in our work. When Anticorp was designed, it was not a beginning of interest in corruption. It was roughly the first time when the European Commission acknowledged that corruption is a major problem. We were actually at the end of 15 years of global international interest with corruption. If you remember, it's now more than 15 years since the World Bank President James Wolfenson uh, called as a, at a global crusade against corruption. And what may come to a surprise with you is that judging by the instruments that we have, which are quite poor, and a part of our mandate was to come up with better instruments in order to understand the change. But based on this, you know, old instruments and quite established instruments like the CPI of transparency, which was here mentioned, no country really progressed in that interval. And the whole of the world actually has very, very little progress. Now, the question really is, is that we don't, we don't have progress because our anti-corruption instruments fail, or we do not notice progress because our indicators, which are mostly perception indicators, this aggregate of country experts indicators, as CPI or World Bank are, uh, or the indicators simply are insensitive to change due to their nature. Even when they seem to notice change, change falls within standard error. So if you look at a whole, I mean, you would really say that the world didn't really change very much in, in 15 years. 
we will, however, focus it on Europe, but I'd be very glad if at, if at Q&A people have questions about other areas or other countries or other examples. As you will see, a lot of our recommendations are based on the countries which succeeded, however, in, in building control of corruption. But we couldn't find them in the last 15 years, so we had to look like in the last 40 years. And looking in the last 40 years, we were able to find about seven countries, and those are not countries where the international community worked. They're simply countries which progressed and got there by themselves. One of them, uh, the top European case, is Estonia, a country which managed to move from a corruption level similar with the rest of Soviet Union. Perhaps a little bit better, but still uh, distressing corruption level to a very good quality. You're going to see that in our new measurements that we create, Estonia is really on on top, which is quite a great achievement. So it can be done, only we seem to have very, very few cases. And therefore, looking what happened in these cases on a longer interval of time is really, really, really helpful. So our argument is that Europe, despite its development, actually uh, matters uh, a lot in, in this situation. The loss of trust in, uh, in the European Union between the two last rounds of European Parliament election is largely due to corruption, strange as it may seem. So corruption accounts for as much as economic growth. And by corruption, I simply mean a Eurobarometer question where people are asked, do you think that your government does enough to control corruption? I mean, can you imagine that this question explains nearly half the loss of trust between two rounds of Europe? Parliament. I mean, of course, people don't know how much their government have done, but still, it really reflects the trust of people that the government is really, really trying to control this, this phenomenon. And it matters. You know, I don't have to explain to you how much trust in you matters in times like this. Then, do you know that actually before the fiscal pact, budget deficit was correlated with perceived corruption at national level? It was quite a strong correlation. So, you know, from our perspective as anti-corruption fighters, we are really very much concerned. People always say that, you know, budget deficits are for development. We think budget deficits are a lot about corruption. And giving more money for investment is frequently a lot about corruption. So that's why it's, it's good that we are able to see what is in their money, it's, this money should be transparent. Finally, quite big budgetary impact in other ways, you know, if all the European countries would be able to control corruption at the level of the most advanced European states, like Denmark, for instance, or like Sweden, right? Uh, then we would immediately earn half the EU budget for this year. This is how important. Uh, in, in this isolated field, which is just tax collection, corruption and control of corruption is. Of course, it is difficult to control corruption at the Danish level. <laughs> We're not saying otherwise, but it is worse, right? The stake is, is quite high. It will solve a lot of our problems. Finally, it is quite impressive that during this interval, two out of three Europeans have come to claim in surveys. And, you know, we put a lot of question in, in surveys due to these uh, instruments, which and due to these new funds that DG Home put into surveys. And for the first time, we asked Europeans questions about favoritism, about contracts. We didn't only ask them about bribing. If you ask Europeans about bribing, bribing is a very limited phenomenon. Less than 10% of people in Europe uh, or companies seem to encounter bribe. However, if you ask them what is the rule of the game in contract, 
in public contracts allocation, you would be surprised how many people actually say that uh, the rule of the game is, is favoritism and they're not distributed as you would expect it. In fact, two out of three Europeans say yes at the question if favoritism explains uh, success in both public and private sector. And about 60% actually claim that it is political connections which explain success in business. Now, what kind of evidence did we collect and what does this evidence say? So first, you have by now understood that by corruption we understand any form of favoritism, not just bribing, right? It can be legal or illegal. In fact, one of the important arguments that we make is that legal corruption is extremely harmful, that deliberately corrupt people or corrupt groups or corrupt parties create uh, regulation which creates privileges, which allow, for instance, some people to evade tax or some companies to, to get undue profit. So any form of favoritism which results in either privilege on one part or discrimination on another, we consider it corruption as it is if it is perpetrated by a public authority. And we show in Anticorp how harmful corruption is in EU, and now I'm going to show you very fast just some of the major consequences, how uneven control of corruption EU member states have and what, it, what explains this, how misguided the anti-corruption, which is more than ever, is frequently, and therefore we do not manage to score enough against corruption, and what lessons we can learn from countries which managed to control corruption in recent times. And one of the papers that you encountered in, in the lobby when coming in is actually entirely based on lessons learned from these seven countries. This is one paper. The other paper is the, the report that we just made on trust and integrity in Europe for the Dutch presidency, which also has a number of, of useful instruments. And uh, the third report is a report on uh, simply corruption in, uh, in Europe. Now, this is simply the evidence of what I said before, that one cause of mistrust in EU is integrity enforcement as perceived by governments. As a ground rule, what you see here are uh, Bavarian regressions. We generally control this with human development, but for illustration, we just put them as Bavarian regressions. So countries which fall within the circle generally confirm the rule. Countries which are outside the circle are outliers and other explanations that what I argue here should be found to explain of these countries. But what you see here is that actually there's strong correlation between trust in the European Union and effectiveness to combat corruption. And I can tell you that also in change in trust, so in the difference between these two, it's also strongly correlated with this. Of course, as I said before, growth is the other part of this explanation, but our argument is that growth itself is largely, largely explained by governance and the quality of governance. So not only loss of trust in EU is explained directly by corruption, but also the economic performance, which in itself generates trust or mistrust, is largely explained by corruption in its turn. And how does this happen? You see here a nearly you know, perfect correlation where there are absolutely no outliers, which is impact on corruption on innovation capacity. We rely a lot, and this is one of our new buzzwords on innovation, that we will innovate our way out of, out of the crisis or whatever. Well, corrupt countries do not innovate. Corrupt countries do not manage to build merit systems. Actually, they have systems which are against merit. If they have any innovators, those innovators leave 
and this is what I show in the second graph, right? The second most important correlated thing with corruption is brain drain. And of course, in brain drain in the European Union is a natural thing because, you know, we have the freedom to work wherever in the European Union. So when we are trying to, you know, look at countries to improve governance in poor countries, East European or Mediterranean countries, we have to understand that the most competitive people in these countries, people who actually would be in the best position to change corrupt rules of the game there, are no longer there. These people are the first to flee this kind of arrangement and to go towards merit-based countries, which is quite bad because it only reinforces a vicious circle, more or less. And this is how corruption subminates a capacity of a country to, to recover economically. Corruption greatly impacts government effectiveness. Here you see a correlation which is based on the new integrity measurement that we created, which is an objective integrity measurement. I will show you immediately. It's what we call index of public integrity, made of six components, all objective components. Look at how index of public integrity and world governance effectiveness score correlate perfectly. So in other words, you will not have government capacity in a country where favoritism is the rule of the game. And by favoritism, we understand many things. It can be nepotism, it can be favoritism based on party connection and politicization of administration. All form of favoritism that you have actually greatly subminate your, uh, your administrative capacity. And there is no way to, you know, to fix administrative capacity first and favor favoritism after. It works the other way around. Closer to very concrete things, corrupt countries poorly absorb EU funds. So the simple fact of giving them money doesn't really solve the problem. In fact, what we argue, and Mihaly has a lot of evidence to show, is that sometimes it may worsen the problem if you give resources that you, you cannot check very much on. Like this situation. Yes, so continuing on uh, looking at the effects of corruption, here is a bit more <clears throat> micro-level uh, evidence system based on systematic objective data, but looking at a really particular uh, aspect of uh, investment and, uh, and uh, public sector spending. So what you see here is uh, regional uh, prices for uh, motorway and highway construction projects for about the last five years. And each dot represents the per kilometer million uh, euro uh, price on the vertical axis and on the uh, horizontal axis we uh, lined up the, the kind of suspicious uh, corruption related aspects of these uh, projects related to how they were tendered. So was there enough competition or only one company bidding or the, uh, the deadlines for putting in bids were suspiciously uh, short or uh, the specification was a lot more complicated than the, the norm on the industry. So suggesting that actually it was tailored to a particular uh, company. And what you see here is something utterly obvious, that more risk uh, of corruption, weaker competition for public resources leads to more expensive projects. So this is roughly uh, translating into uh, 100,000 euros per kilometer per an additional red flag of corruption. Now, this is just an association, and we have more uh, stronger statistical evidence uh, controlling for a lot of factors such as bridges and uh, labor costs and so on and so forth. But this evidence is also in line with World Bank evidence that actually red flags 
little aspects of the tendering process which seem bureaucratic hurdles only, seem uh, unimportant administrative uh, bugs in the system, they actually translate into large uh, costs to the public purse. Now moving on to uh, more uh, current topics, as uh, Alina already mentioned, the Panama Papers did us a, a great favor, but this is systematic evidence from about 30,000 contracts awarded all around in Europe. And what you see here is simply comparing country, uh, companies uh, suppliers to European governments according to where they are registered. So whether they are registered in a tax haven such as Panama, Luxembourg, Cyprus, uh, the Seychelles Islands, or they are registered in so-called like more transparent jurisdictions like you know Germany or France would be. And the simple evidence is such that uh, they are more likely to be single bidders on competitive markets if they are registered in tax havens. So that would be the uh, okay, so I can, oh no, I can show you. So that would be the darker bar, meaning that it's 28% uh, likelihood of being a single bidder on a competitive market if you are registered in a, in a tax haven versus 26. And then the, the more complex uh, uh, set of red flags also point at the same thing. So, you know, there is a story. Uh, corruption costs a lot for the public. It's expensive. Then there is less competition for these contracts and the money disappears in these black holes of uh, the global financial uh, system. Now, Alina also mentioned European funds, and we are worried about European funds predominantly because they increase resources for corruption, which is uh, a byproduct of basically increasing funds available for uh, projects for developing countries. That's, you know, we cannot change that. Now, of course, the, the regulatory framework and institutional framework tries to control these additional uh, resources for uh, corruption by adding uh, uh, additional uh, bureaucratic uh, controls and, and oversight uh, functions above the spending. But what these uh, dots here represent is that overall the, the efforts uh, are not enough. So what you see here is basically a comparison between projects which are funded by the EU and similar uh, matched projects uh, or contracts funded by national governments, okay? So we basically take a simple logic of, okay, here is a road construction projects funded by the EU, a similar road construction project funded by national government. Here is a, a school meal uh, contract funded by the EU and a school meal uh, contract funded by the national government. And we compare where uh, there are more red flags of these two sets of similar contracts. And what you see here is, um, Countries above the, de uh, the, the dashed line are countries where the likelihood of corruption is higher when the contract, a similar contract, is funded by the EU. And the ones under it, quite a few countries, unfortunately, they are the ones where bureaucratic controls seem to work. So corruption risks are lower uh, in EU-funded uh, uh, contracts and, and procurement tenders. Now, this just tells you one really simple thing that Controlling corruption through really meticulous bureaucratic means usually has the effect of restricting open access and competition. But if you are a, a corrupt company with powerful friends, you can hire the right lawyers and the right, right uh, auditors, and you will get in the game. You will be able to compete for those uh, uh, more restricted resources. So you actually do the opposite of what you should do when you uh, follow um, what Alina and others have shown, that you have to increase competition and increase open access for public resources. So quite the opposite what the EU is currently uh, requiring from member states. Now moving on to a couple of um, 
rankings because we like rankings, not because they uh, will tell us what to do, but because they uh, grab headlines and in the end that's in the title. So what you see here is roughly uh, 3 million contracts uh, all across Europe uh, awarded according to the European Public Procurement Directives. And the, the regional uh, shading uh, of the, the map of Europe basically uh, captures the, the, the ratio of single bidder contracts. Now, single bidder contracts on competitive markets are one of the, the easiest and most straightforward measures of uh, restricted access to uh, public resources, which is uh, a synonym for uh, corruption risk. And then, you know, what you see here is something really uh, familiar, Eastern Europe uh, uh, being largely uh, uh, underperforming compared to Western Europe with Poland as a massive outlier. Now, a similar picture you can see here is single bidding plus a couple of other uh, process-related uh, red flags such as short deadlines or overly uh, over-specified uh, project specifications. Now you see again the, the picture is similar, but there are a couple of surprising bits, right? If you look at Scotland, for example, or Northern Ireland, they really an outliers within the United Kingdom. Northern Finland, it's not like the good governance achiever we, we are used to. And again, there is the, the opposite of it. Some bits of Hungary, some bits of Poland are actually doing rather well. So this is just uh, to tell you that, well, we have the deadlines, uh, the headlines from Transparency International and other big organizations looking at countries, but actually countries are diverse. And that's the question to what degree there is a single rule of the game or there is a single rule of the game with a couple of exceptions, such as you know, Northern Ireland within the UK or Northern Finland uh, as opposed to the Southern Finland. And finally, showing the power of big data and the kind of approaches we have been uh, putting forward, you can look into countries, you can look at country averages, and also you can look at specific institutions. And what's highlighted here is uh, the single bidder share of EU institutions in their own procurement uh, practice, okay? So basically we treat the European Union bodies as if they were uh, one country and put them on a, a, a same graph. It's not too... Maybe you should explain what single bidder is. So single bidder is, um, is uh, basically a tender when one uh, bid was submitted uh, for... Only one bid was submitted. So what we do here is we first identify competitive markets. So large part of defense and nuclear power plants are kind of excluded, and we go for markets where there are a lot of companies who could potentially bid, like school meals, fixing potholes in, in roads, so on and so forth. So once we identify these markets, we look at lack of competition on these markets, okay? Because it suggests that, well, you could have had competition had you wanted. Uh, open competition, but then it was restricted because only one company bid for the contract. Um, okay, and then uh, a bit more geeky bit of the of the picture, but it's really important. So currently, as Alina said, we struggle a lot with getting data, and then this. Uh, uh, map basically just tells you that in most countries what we have about public procurement tenders is basically the bidding uh, process, so you know, how you can bid, where are the documents, and then uh, the contract award, uh, so who, win, who won and uh, which companies bid. But we don't know what happens with this signed paper uh, called the contract. Right, so most countries except for Italy and uh, Portugal and Norway and a couple of others, we don't have information. So basically if we start monitoring uh, uh, suspicious and, and corruption uh, risk uh, tendering activities, what we get is that companies move on to the, the gray area again, where there is no data such as uh, um, 
implementing contracts. Okay, so that's the strong message. If you want to monitor con uh, procurement corruption risks, you have to cover the full cycle. Otherwise, you just displace corruption rather than eradicate it. So uh, getting back to the heart of the problem, so are we worried about bribery? Yes, we are worried, but what we are much more worried about is political favoritism. Uh, the, the, the favoritistic or partial uh, uh, allocation of public resources based on connections and, and political uh, ties to those who hold power, those who make public decisions. So this is our primary uh, concern, and there will be a couple of slides about uh, how we think about it and how we compare countries using big data. So the first one, I have to say I'm Hungarian, so when I say Hungary is the paradigmatic case of particularistic, favoritistic uh, resource allocation, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, I have to say it's the strong evidence for that. So what you see on the top right bit is simply just plotting companies around the change of government. So the, the orange line would represent the mark, combined market share of those companies who were successful under uh, the previous government. And you can see that their market share drastically drops, so from something like 60% to uh, 10%. And you have the flip side of the coin, companies which were uh, really successful under the, the current uh, uh, right-wing government, they basically came from nowhere. So that's, that's the picture what you see is that once you take into account all the economic explanations, prime investment, the main market of the company, so on and so forth, you still have a large unexplained change in company successes. Some became a much more successful company, some became a much less successful just after the government changes. Okay, so this is the kind of large scale uh, particularism, political influence on public procurement markets. So if you add up the, the green and the orange line, it's basically to 70 to 80% of the market. Now what makes us really worried about uh, these companies is that their tender level red flags, such as single bidding, short deadlines, and, and uh, the others I mentioned, they also follow the same pattern. So when companies are more successful than their uh, economic characteristics would uh, predict, then they tend to have a lot more uh, red flags than their peers. And then when they move on and the government changes and they become much less successful, suddenly the red flags disappear. So this really tells you the story that, well, I, my friends were in power, I got a lot of contracts, and I got them in a suspicious way, and now my friends are not in power, and suddenly I have to compete, the, there is no unfair benefits, unfair favors for me, and I'm much less successful. And then the green bars show exactly the opposite. So those companies which are linked to the second government, but they were not successful under the first, they had to compete under the first government. They were not successful. And as they become successful ones, their red flags also uh, uh, shoot up. Now, this is Hungary, uh, the, the paradigmatic case, and uh, I'm sure you heard a lot about it in the headlines. Comparing it to the United Kingdom, which is probably the paradigmatic case of lack of favoritism, you see that the same uh, patterns are much weaker. So the, the green and the orange lines, so those companies which are favored by either governments, basically linger around 10%, 5% of the market. So this is exactly when Alina talks about the rules of the game. Here, favoritism exists. Favoritism exists even in Denmark, even in the UK, but it's an exception. This is something which is strongly controlled and maintained only on the fringes of the uh, oversight institutions. So with this, I pass on to some other paradigmatic cases uh, to Romania. Well, a little bit of idea. I'll, I'll explain. I know it is a bit unfriendly to look at this table. 
you show a little bit what kind of measurements you develop, how we in the end manage to trace corruption in quite an objective way, just using big data, publicly available data. This is what Mish has been talking about all the time when he says you have to do this and you have to do that. It basically means you have to post this. You have to have all this data digital in an open data format. Then you can do this, you know, lots of people can monitor it. Companies which actually lose those tenders would monitor it for free, right? Because it's in their best interest. NGO watchdogs like Transparency or other people will do it and the media will do it, right? But the important thing is that this data is out there. Once it's out there, we have built the tools to look at the data. And what you see here is like the total particularism, what we would call by our broad definition corruption, over uh, quite a significant number of years from... actually in infra infrastructure development. And what you see here is that at the first year when we managed to get the data and monitor this in 2007, you have actually more than half the transactions that the government makes, that the allocations of these public contracts demonstrably particularistic. In other words, we can trace the link of who got the contract to the authority who distributed the contract. How can we trace this? Well, first by single bidding. You have this situation in a country which has a very competitive construction company. Nevertheless, you find only one competitor for these contracts. Why do you think this happens? Well, it happens because either the terms of reference are written to exclude other competitors, or the other competitors know. I mean, it's such a well-known situation that it's known who the winner is going to be, and then they simply do not bother to come to the tender and, and present themselves. And you see that this was quite high. It was 31% in that year. But you can also see that partly due to new regulations and all this stress and anti-corruption, by 2013, this goes down to 8%. So this most obvious and flagrant form of corruption, which is single bidding, is significantly decreasing in this country. The second is more difficult for us to, to compute. It's not just a red flag, but it's a little bit of, of investigation. It's the politically connected contracts. Now, how do we do this? And we hope to do this through DG WIST for all EU28. We do this by putting together two sorts of data. One are the companies which seem to win through data mining significantly more. So in other words, they're extraordinarily lucky. They simply seem to win a lot of public contracts everywhere compared to their economic capacity and, and performance. And the other source of data are companies which are politically connected. In other words, on their boards, some politicians have, have been at some point, or they have politicians among shareholders, or they donate to electoral campaigns. All this is public data in some European countries, right? It's only, you know, I see, I've seen the last issue of The Economist, they make the argument that for Mr. Cameron is not proven yet if privacy or public disclosure should be more important. Well, in new European member state, this is no longer a debate because everybody's conflicts of interest covering more than 10 years are out there. So you can actually see the assets of every politician. If he ever had an interest in a company, it's going to be there. And from this, you can come up with a list of companies with political ties in the same way that political donations are out there, right? And then all you have to do is to match the list 
of politically connected companies with the list of very successful companies winning always public funds, right? And bingo, in Hungary and Romania, this is a significant list. If you ever had a politician sitting on your board or as a shareholder, you win significantly more both national funds and both EU funds, right? That's, you're just more lucky, to put it so. So what you see here are political connections which also go down a little bit. They go down from 23% to 13%. I also have the data, I must tell you, for 2014, and the positive trend continues. So they go down less than the obvious single bidding, but they do go down, right? And then we have what we call other capture. Other capture are captures where we cannot really identify the link. It may be people who have been in school together, right? Or maybe they're just situations of, of bribing or other forms of, you know, of connections. But there are these situations in which a, a public agency gives over 50% of its public funds or two out of three contracts, if they only give on three contracts, to only one private contractor. In other words, they openly give all their money uncompetitively to someone. And this excluding the framework contracts where it's justified to do this, right? In framework contracts, you do a contract with a big provider for four or five years. We exclude those when we do this kind of reasoning, right? And we have quite a number of, of significant companies like this. And you see that this actually have not gone down so impressively. They remained at the same numbers, 1818. Now I'm quite confident they will go down because Romania now has a very active prosecuting agency. And this prosecuting agency simply took for, from us all these hundreds of agencies which are giving all their money to public contractor. And I must say that I was showing also a list a few years ago of the big winners of these construction companies. There were construction companies which had profit rates of 30-40% after the crisis in the year when at the national level construction sector was contracting and they had 30-40% profit out of just public works. All, all these people are in jail now and they have all been sent to jail in the last year. So this is quite a development which explains some correlation between these figures. So in the end, you will actually see that out of, you know, over the majority uh, particularistic contracts, we have now only come to quite a big figure still, 39%, but uh, still it is a reduction by, uh, by nearly a quarter in Romania, which shows for the first time that anti-corruption is going somewhere. Because if you look in CPI or in World Bank data, uh, Romania is not going anywhere. It's really stuck. And this, in fact, shows the difficulty of, uh, of the battle there between what used to be generalized systemic corruption and what is now a strong anti-corruption but has a very big problem to solve. So this is the kind of direct observation measurement that you can do by big data in order to understand if your policy is going somewhere or not. So what we argue is that corruption as a governance practice through favoritism has quite big regional and national impact. It distorts merit-based system, it hurts market competition, it ruins trust in government and the foundation of the economic growth. That corrupt practices tend to cut across sectors, national budget and EU funds alike are, are hurt, and also that there are wide differences across EU member states from corruption as exception 
to corruption as a norm. And we argue that two different sets of strategies should be applied. What we are currently doing is that we recommend things that very developed countries do, countries where corruption is an exception, to countries where corruption is a norm. And those obviously do not work. We simply need to return to strategies which make you know, formerly corrupt countries evolve to less corrupt countries. The way that Denmark does it now doesn't really help us very much. And one of the ways that we are recommending, which is even in the United Nations Convention Against Corruption, is that everybody does uh, an anti-corruption agency. What you see here is control of corruption with the highest figure best, best control of corruption as measured by World Bank. Before and after the introduction of an anti-corruption agency, you see averages across all European countries which have this in EU 28. And as you can see, and what the line is simply the year zero when you introduce the agency. So you see five years before and five years after, right? And you see that actually control of corruption has not gotten better by World Bank. As I tell you, not even Romania has gotten better there. So, you know, so uh, this obviously is no magic tool, creating an anti-corruption agency. And this is very significant because this is what we try to tell Ukrainians that it's the most important thing to do. Do this anti-corruption agency and we're going to give you all this. I mean, this is like a major conditionality. Freedom of information, which is another important you know, thing in the architecture of transparency and corruption. You see here for freedom of information on 10 years, also with a zero year. And you see that control of corruption you know, first doesn't seem to improve, then it seems to improve, but if you look at the line there, you're going to see it's only a little bit above of the original figure, but then it goes bad again. So in itself, not even freedom of information, I mean the existence of a freedom of information legislation, because that's all there it is here. It's just the existence, it's not the implementation, doesn't seem to help much, right? And this makes us, we did a lot of research and when does anti-corruption legislation actually matter? When does it make a difference? And we make the argument that it's only context, a certain context which empowers legislation. Otherwise, we have paper, Mishi, for instance, has a paper on party finance restrictions, which are very popular. Everybody recommends them, Greco, the European Commission, whatever. They really don't help. They can actually worsen situation. What seems to help a lot is transparency of, of party donations. Those, if they are transparent, they, they allow a process around them, which is, however, roughly a, you know, a debate process, a larger process, not just a legal process. Financial disclosure for public officials, which I just praised, that saying that it's good that they have conflict of interest out there. They don't seem to make much difference when you look at them by themselves, right? Freedom of information, electoral legislation. Again, I mean, look, countries like Italy, always they reform their legislation thinking that this will, will solve corruption, you know. Well, we have evidence that it can make things worse, but we didn't find any evidence that it made things better anyway and, and anywhere, because it didn't, really, it didn't. Finally, anti-corruption agencies, you know, no evidence that they improved radically the situation somewhere, but we do find evidence that they can make the situation worse, right? Because they can be politically manipulated, who's in government can arrest political opponents. So that is really, really complicated. All right, so what context is enabling tools? And this is our argument. Our argument is that the anti-corruption strategy should fix a whole context. And it is not so difficult to fix the whole context if there is sufficient agency in a country to do this. And by this, we don't only understand the agency in government, but in the broader society as well. And our argument is that control of corruption is this balance that you see here between opportunities or resources for corruption. So you know, a normal thing would be to try to reduce those, to try to control those, which is not easy because part of them are simply political. It's too much discretion. It's poor regulations, actually 
actually invented for people to, to try to bribe or to find a connection or they cannot go around it. And constraints, by constraints, understanding not only the constraints put by legislation, but by a, an independent judiciary and by sufficient citizens in society who are able to be interested in what the government does and who are able, able to put enough resistance to whatever goes on. And we conceptualize these resources versus constraints in an actually neat and partly, you know, to a great extent, objective index, which has the six elements in society. So on the resources part, it has red tape, and you can very concretely see, this is a website, I'll show you the website in a second, you can very concretely see what countries do and what we found to be most correlated with corruption out of bureaucratic arrangements. Then uh, you see the trade barriers. Again, if you manage to reduce those, you will do better on corruption, budget transparency. And then on the constraint side, you see e-citizens, the capacity of citizens to, to be connected through internet, so to be able to look at the standards, for instance, independent media and independent judiciary. And this is the website, and with this we approach the, the end of this. This is the website where we put this up. This exists now for 110 countries, but what you see here is the European ranking. It's on integrityindex.org. You see the six components, how they accumulate in, in an index. And on top of the world, as you would expect, of course, it's uh, Denmark. Uh, on the broader uh, global, global uh, index, I think it's Norway, actually, so it's another country from Europe, but not a, a EU member country. And what is amazing is that actually Estonia is doing so well. All the other countries are no surprise, but the fact that <coughs> Estonia is so high up shows that even, uh, you know, even a new member state, even a country with uh, great concerns can, uh, can get there. And you see here how they got there. You see here that actually Estonia fixed good governance first and economic growth followed. So, these are more or less synthetically our recommendations that every, every national anti-corruption strategy has to take into account a specific context, but in particular if corruption is the norm or if corruption is the exceptions. And tools exist. We have developed on the website roughly tools for every context. More in detail, you should just take the country and look at countries. The important thing is that the balance is right. Getting the balance is the important thing. Afterwards, everything follows. Thank you. Um, don't worry. <laughs> Thank you. It was a very, very interesting presentation going much beyond what we are used to see, uh, even in a more detailed uh, publication. Uh, on this topic, we I now give the floor to uh, Karl, who is going to give a bit of a more operational uh, presentation to my understanding of how we do things uh, in Europe uh, at the moment. Karl. Uh, in, in my presentation. Um, but first of all, let me say uh, thank you very much to uh, Bruegel and to Alessio for allowing me to be here. Uh, it, it's a pleasure indeed uh, to be here in the company of Alina and Mihaly. Uh, we have found their work very useful and, and dare I say it, inspiring uh, to our work as Transparency International, particularly uh, at EU level. Um, that's the good news. Uh, the bad news is that there isn't a, uh, the width of a cigarette paper between uh, Alina and us 
on the uh, analysis or the conclusions we would draw. So that, that's bad news for the quality of the discussion and the debate, perhaps. So I thought rather than, than, than uh, maybe quibbling with this aspect or that aspect of, 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 of the, the, the presentation that Lena has just given, uh, that I would move to, move to the obvious next question, given that we are sitting in Brussels, which is um, what can the EU do about all this? Um, and uh, the short answer to that is that the EU has probably been doing more uh, on this subject uh, than it ever has in the previous uh, 50 years of its existence. Uh, it's probably, you might even say that it's doing the best that it can within the very hard constraints that it has, uh, the question will be, is that best good enough, given the severity and the, and, and the pers persistence of this phenomenon uh, in the EU? Um, the headline of the talk of, of our session is uh, uh, fighting corruption from headlines to real impact. What I'm going to be talking about is a lot of EU policy measures that probably haven't even made the headlines, uh, let alone uh, uh, had real impact on the ground. But we shall, we, we shall see. So, but first, uh, because I shouldn't assume that everybody has uh, a, a, a full familiarity with Transparency International, a little introduction to the organization. We're a global NGO with the mission to fight corruption. We've been doing this for uh, 23 years now, so we have uh, quite a considerable amount of uh, uh, experience. Uh, and the experience we, that we, and we draw on that, ex for, the, for that experience, we draw on the uh, uh, experience of the, our national chapters in more than 100 countries worldwide. Within the EU, we have 25 national chapters in the 28 member states, so that's quite good coverage. All of that coordinated by our International Secretariat, which is based in Berlin, uh, and the International Secretariat then set up our office in Brussels uh, about seven or eight years ago to work with the institutions here. Here you can see the young men and women of the TI EU office, uh, the average age skewed considerably by the uh, wrinkled gentleman in the top left-hand corner. Um, but uh, that's the people responsible for this kind of work. So uh, Alina mentioned the uh, uh, Corruption Perceptions Index, and of course that is the, the tool or the, the, I guess, the, the thing that we're most uh, well known for. But we also do a number of uh, uh, in-depth uh, qualitative studies of corruption. Uh, we, in 2012, we published uh, Money, Power and Politics. That's the report there on the top left-hand corner. Uh, which looked at uh, corruption risks uh, in most European countries, in most EU countries. Uh, we have also replicated that kind of report uh, according to the same methodology for the EU institutions here in, in Brussels and Strasbourg and Luxembourg. Uh, and uh, that was our European Union Integrity System report that we published in 2014. Uh, and uh, you will probably have seen a fleeting reference in, in Alina's presentation to the issue of lobbying and the separation of public and private interests. And this is a, an emerging area in corruption that uh, we are also doing quite a bit of work on. Uh, and indeed, we are actually we have a website called EU Integrity Watch, uh, which actually monitors in real time uh, the lobbying that is done here in Brussels, uh, thanks to the European Commission's recent initiative to publish uh, the information about lobby meetings, uh, at least with the top 1% of EU officials. Um, so now, I, I, I guess uh, one of the things that I want to dwell on here is that, uh, is that uh, corruption is, of course, an uh, international and transnational phenomenon. Uh, it is essentially a cross-border activity, and therefore, uh, what is needed are international frameworks to deal with that. I mean, you, you can see that most clearly in, in the phenomenon of corporate bribery, where you have uh, firms from so-called 
so-called clean countries like Sweden or Germany uh, doing their dirty business in countries that uh, have poor integrity frameworks uh, such as uh, Romania and Greece or uh, other countries around the world. Uh, it's also uh, important, it also, the phenomenon realized, uh, manifests itself in uh, money laundering, and we can see that with the Panama Papers, where in order to stash your ill-gotten gains, the proceeds of corruption, uh, of course you need to put that in jurisdictions that are beyond the reach of the authorities, the taxman, the public. Um, but also I would say, and this is important in the EU, uh, a third uh, a transnational effect are the spillover effects of corruption in, in tightly integrated uh, economies like the EU. And I think that was something that we saw during the, the, the Euro crisis where uh, essentially, and I'm simplifying somewhat, uh, um, property bubbles uh, in uh, countries on the periphery that were inflated by a number of factors, but definitely political favoritism and corruption uh, had major economic spillover effects into the rest uh, of the EU, and I think that's something that uh, we, will, we will come back to. But there are a number of international conventions in place, not just what the EU can do. You, could, you can see a couple of them there. Probably the most important and comprehensive one, certainly, is the uh, United Nations Convention Against Corruption, uh, which, was, uh, which came into effect uh, in the mid-2000s. Uh, uh, and uh, I'm very pleased to say that Germany finally has signed up to this uh, last year, so now all EU countries uh, are signed up. Um, so within this international set of international uh, frameworks, there is the EU legal framework. And I suppose the most important thing uh, to emphasize here is that there isn't a very strong uh, legal basis or legal framework for this issue of corruption. Uh, there is, frankly, no competence that the EU has in issues of uh, anti-bribery law uh, and uh, anti-corruption initiatives uh, that it comparable to what it has in, say, the internal market uh, area. So, but what we do have is, uh, well, we had uh, a number of conventions and uh, which are now superseded by the Lisbon Treaty. Uh, those conventions mainly affect what can be done about corruption in EU funds or by EU officials. So, of course, that's a, that's a strong area of competence. Uh, and we have Article 83 of the Lisbon Treaty, which says that the EU does have a mandate to address serious cross-border crime, and, and corruption is consider, considered a serious cross-border crime. So that is, that is a wedge for the EU to, to, um, to, to get into this issue. But of course, if you look into that in more detail, the, the powers are circumscribed to uh, harm, minimum harmonization of certain criminal measures. So not a tremendously strong legal basis for action here. That said, the EU has been doing uh, as much as it can in this area. And, and here's a, a quick typology of, of, of the areas where the EU has been active. Um, so I'm going to go through these areas uh, very, very quickly, uh, in, in, in lightning quick fashion, of course, but uh, we, we, we can come back to the points we make in discussion. Um, probably the most successful of these, um, and that may say something, uh, the fact that it is the most successful may, something, may say something about the EU's efforts in these areas, has been the, the accession process. Um, and uh, most notably the emphasis on, on, on 20, chapters 23 and 24 uh, on uh, just judiciary and fundamental rights, uh, justice, freedom and security. Um, now, I think that this has been a powerful uh, lever to get certainly formal legal and institutional reforms in those countries that have joined the EU. But of course, what we have seen, and, and the, uh, the evidence from the indicators that confirms this, is that 
once that conditionality is no longer effective and countries join the EU, there has been a number, a certain amount of backsliding of, of, of countries. Uh, I think probably uh, Hungary is probably the most notable of those countries, but uh, it is, uh, that does qualify then the, the sort of early successes of the conditionality in the, access, uh, in the accession process. Um, I've also included in terms of uh, conditionality, um, the, the kind of conditionality that comes with getting uh, uh, EU structural investment funds. Uh, now, the, this kind of conditionality is, I think, highly pointed out, uh, is mainly bureaucratic and formal. There are lots of ex-ante controls uh, on, uh, in terms of getting the money, uh, and then very formal uh, controls on checking you know, how, how the money has been spent. Um, the problem with that, of course, is it doesn't uh, it doesn't really get at the kind of favoritism and extra legal uh, corruption, or maybe just frankly legal corruption that, that often is involved in the distribution of those funds. Um, so what I've put here with a question mark is, is maybe a, uh, where there could be more conditionality. Uh, perhaps in, in certainly the, the, the funds could be more conditional on the effective spending of these uh, funds. So uh, the, per the performance of countries in terms of spending these uh, funds. So not in terms of just, you know, have you spent it according to the rules, but, you know, has this contributed to the kind of development outcomes that, uh, that we wanted? Um, and participation, there could be maybe more conditionality on, on, on participation, uh, and by which I mean the participation of civil society in both planning uh, the spending of these funds um, and importantly, the monitoring of these funds. And I think this is something which is, is, is accepted to some extent by certainly the European Commission. Uh, Transparency International um, and uh, DG Regio are now involved in a very uh, exciting project, I think, which is to get civil society organizations involved in the monitoring uh, of, these, of the spending of these funds at a micro level, looking at uh, individual projects uh, and seeing um, whether there is corruption or waste or, or mismanagement in these projects. Uh, on, on detection, uh, it is, uh, this is uh, an area where I think the, the EU is very weak. We, we have, of course, the European Anti-Fraud Office, or OLAF, uh, but OLAF's powers are it, it, merely to, con to conduct investigations. It is an administrative body. Uh, and it doesn't even have the kind of uh, powers that uh, you, maybe even some other uh, investigative bodies have. For example, it, it can't, uh, it can't, it can't f compel people to uh, come as a witness. Uh, it can't, uh, um, it can't do wiretappings and things like that. Um, so, in order to um, in order to overcome this problem, there has been the proposal that there will be a European Public Prosecutor's Office, which would actually not only do investigations which in Ola's case are then handed over to the national authorities, and you can see in the case of, say, structural funds, how there might be conflicts of interest there. But there would be a, an authority which would actually do the, a European authority which would actually do the prosecutions uh, itself. Now that sounds terribly exciting. It sounds like the, the origins of uh, the European FBI or something like that, but uh, the reality of the proposal is, is somewhat uh, uh, weaker and I'm choosing my words carefully here. Um, I, in fact, I would say the current proposal for a European public process, there's nothing European about it. Uh, it is uh, kind of, well, we can go into the details of that. And importantly, uh, the, uh, it, it will, the scope of that office is still limited to uh, crimes or corruption offenses against EU funds and not corruption offenses more generally. 
Um, there has been some legislation. There is, there is uh, despite its limited uh, uh, competence, what I would consider anti-corruption legislation, uh, there is a uh, convention which is, uh, prohibits private sector to private sector bribery, which is something that is sometimes not criminalized in countries. So the kind of thing I'm thinking of is when uh, pharmaceutical companies bribe doctors who are not state employees, who are not working in the public service. For example, uh, what GlaxoSmithKline Welcome did in, in China. Th these kind of uh, types of bribery uh, are sometimes not criminalized. This uh, framework directive, as it was then, uh, has criminalized it. Uh, and there is, um, in the area of financial crime, uh, the, the EU does have some competence uh, in anti-money laundering uh, since, uh, as a result, partly of the, the uh, uh, September 11th attacks in 2001, it has introduced uh, anti-money laundering legislation at EU level. <coughs> and more recently, it has introduced uh, legislation about the confiscation, to facilitate the confiscation of criminal proceeds, because, of course, let's face it, if you're making a career in corruption, you're doing it for the money, and that's really uh, hitting people where it hurts. So the recent EU initiatives uh, to make that confiscation easier, and particularly uh, in the jargon, uh, non-conviction-based uh, confiscation, uh, where you don't have to get a conviction in order for somebody to forfeit their assets, uh, that is something which is, has been developed, and I think that's that's very important in corruption cases where there is actually very rarely a, a conviction, a final conviction in these cases. Um, and more recently, uh, the EU has been a, a, I think, convert to the cause of of of, of transparency. So, as I said, a lot, a lot of the uh, a lot of the initiatives we've been discussing are uh, about repressive measures in the area of financial crime. Uh, or they are bureaucratic controls uh, or about institution building. But recently there have been, has been more legislation saying, let's put this information out in the public domain. Let's mandate companies or, or uh, authorities across Europe to put information into the public domain. Uh, uh, perhaps maybe the most important, uh, given the role of uh, the extractive sector in corruption, around the world is, is a, a, I would say, a pioneering piece of legislation that was passed in 2013 to uh, make it uh, public all the payments that oil, gas, mining, and forestry companies make to governments around the world, uh, and in, that applies to you as, as well. Um, there have been other corporate disclosures measures as well, which force companies to, to, to say more about what they're doing to, to fight corruption. And of course, I, we don't have to emphasize public procurement, but I think uh, this is uh, after Mahali's presentation, but uh, again, uh, more efforts now, I think, to put information about the public, uh, about the public procurement process into the public domain. I think there's a requirement with the new public procurement directives to keep records of uh, all public procurement and make them accessible on request, at least, uh, which is maybe not full transparency, but 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 progress, and perhaps uh, maybe the uh, the. Um, something that, that is, is, is even more relevant now because of Panama Papers. In 2015, there was an amendment to the anti-money laundering directives which uh, made it mandatory for, for the first time for EU governments to have central registers of beneficial ownership. So that means the real persons behind these shell companies around the world, which are often uh, the uh, vehicles for siphoning off corrupt funds. Uh, those now have to be recorded centrally. And indeed, uh, the legislation goes further and says these databases have to be open to anybody with a legitimate interest. Um, and now, that was before Panama Papers. I think maybe after Panama Papers, we'll be seeing legitimate interest 
got rid of and we, it will be fully public and open to journalists and NGOs and other people who we, we would consider had to have a legitimate interest in this kind of information. And lastly, uh, the, what the EU does is, well, quite a lot of monitoring. In fact, uh, this is something which the, the EU is, is, I suppose, quite, quite, quite good at. Uh, because of the perceived failures of the accession process, we have a special post-accession monitoring uh, mechanism for Bulgaria and, and Romania, uh, which I, I think has uh, with variable success. And then I think the, the uh, partly as a result of the, the feeling that it was unfair to single out Bulgaria and Romania in this respect when there were clear problems in older member states such as Greece and Italy, uh, the EU introduced a uh, comprehensive anti-corruption report in, which was published for the first time in 2014. Uh, and that report, that report uh, then uh, is, is available for every single country. Uh, and, those, and the uh, recommendations from that report have ended up in the European semester. So to, to wrap up, I mean, the question is, uh, given that, uh, that level of effort, given these initiatives, what next? Well, I think there is uh, clearly a, a, lot of, a lot of things going on, but it's very fragmented. Uh, and the question is how coherent it is. And there should be the recognition at the very highest political level that this issue of corruption is core to the EU's mission. I think Alina and Mihaly have made the case very clearly that this is, uh, to, this is all to the detriment of the EU's economic, economic track record. I talked about the spillover effects that were, uh, I think, at the heart of the, of the Euro crisis. Uh, and I think there is a belated recognition that it is core to the EU's mission and not a fringe issue. So for that reason, there should be a comprehensive uh, EU anti-corruption strategy rather than the fragmented initiatives that there are at the moment. Uh, and a particular attention paid to policy coherence on this because we are seeing some incoherence. And, and I would, uh, th maybe the one thing I would emphasize here, for example, is that there was a recent directive passed uh, called the Trade Secrets Directive, which was trying to protect uh, corporate uh, secrets, uh, intellectual property, etc. Um, uh, but what it said is that basically if you reveal those trade secrets, uh, uh, then you uh, are subject to very harsh criminal penalties and possibly prison. Um, and this, uh, given that this is the accusation that has been leveled against Antoine Deltour, who is currently uh, on trial at the moment in Luxembourg for revealing so-called trade secrets, this could have a, a chilling effect on uh, whistleblowers uh, around Europe, and given that whistleblowers are one of the main sources of information we have for corruption and misconduct around Europe, uh, this is a very, very worrying develop. So I think some concerns there about whether uh, there is a coherence in the EU's uh, um, method of addressing this problem. Thank you. Um, happy to answer any questions. Thank you very much. I, um, I would have a few questions uh, of my own, but I'll... Uh, I'd rather give it uh, to the floor, uh, give you all an occasion to, to pose your questions. I will uh, collect a few and then uh, turn them back to the panel. Please mention your name, your affiliation, and if your question is directed to a specific speaker, uh, please uh, mention it. Yes, please, Francesco. mostly about public procurement uh, and uh, 
So it seems to catch a part of the corruption phenomenon. Um, is this correct? And uh, if, if this is correct, what is the reason? Because the data there are available, you're able to measure, uh, and so we should say, okay, we know a bit more, or much more about one part of corruption, but there is another part of corruption that we still don't know about. Thank you. We have a question over there. Yeah, I'm doing my uh, PhD research on political corruption in hybrid regimes too. And uh, I appreciate your work you're doing. And uh, I agree with all indicators you suggested and this context approach. But one question is puzzling me. All these indicators, they are mostly on the output side of the system. And in systems where we have corruption as a norm, what do we do on the input side? I mean, why would some corrupt system um, would like to change itself? You would be suicide for it. So why, I'm, I'm sure you did some process tracing or some qualitative studies, uh, I don't know, for Estonia or for Romania also. Uh, why did it happen that there was political will to set up some institution which is independent and uh, why there were some politicians who were willing to get under the control? We have a question from Jolt. Yes, I'm, <clears throat> I'm Jolt Arosh-Brugol. Uh, I would like to very much thank you for, for this really excellent uh, presentation. It was really eye-opening and, and really fascinating. I, I enjoy, enjoyed it a lot. Um, but I, I have a question and suggestion to, to strengthen the, the introduction of, 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 of your presentation, because you presented a number of charts showing a bivariate correlation. On the one axis, you plotted the measure of corruption. Another one, government effectiveness, absorption of EU funds, GDP growth, etc., etc. And all charts had the title, Impact of Corruption on Something. Now, certainly, a correlation does not imply causality. And my question is whether you, you try to indeed isolate and identify uh, better corruption is causal to all of these indicators, or everything has a common cause. For example, culture in some countries, there is a bad culture and everything is bad. Uh, corruption is bad, government effectiveness is bad, absorption of the EU fund is bad. So, so whether this comes out of the system as a whole, or indeed corruption has something additional beyond these more general characteristics of, of certain societies. Thank you. Um, all right. Go ahead and, uh, yeah, please keep it brief because I'd like to have another round of questions. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, let me start with the last. Now, first, let me tell you where we actually develop more of this, right? Uh, you can see up there the list of our publications and, in fact, the whole argument and the theory is in this Cambridge book of mine, The Quest for Good Governance, you see it up there. Also, the definition of corruption and uh, why we use procurement as a proxy is in this other book that we put together as government favoritism uh, in Europe. So, in fact, we are using quite um, a lot 
more. I mean, we have a comprehensive model of corruption, which is a time series model of corruption, right? We use what you, what you have seen just as illustration, really, to give you an, an idea of the, of the impact. And yes, we're quite sure it is corruption which causes brain drain, and it's not brain drain with, which causes corruption. But we, you, you know, we know this due to this uh, multivariate model that, uh, that you can see there, although the difficulty of working with uh, these dependent variables is, is known. Why are we using procurement? So also in the book, I use lots of other things except of procurement. Since I define governance as a set of formal and informal institutions determining who gets what, so in other words, I make social allocation, allocation of public resources and of public goods the central element of governance, therefore procurement is a good proxy for me. But I also look in the book at subnational transfers. In corrupt countries, if you are a mayor, I have graphs in the book, if you are a mayor from the same party as the government party, you receive more funds. Algorithm doesn't, doesn't work. Preferential lawmaking and the number of other preferential hiring in civil service, right? So various other forms, you know, they all fall on this dimension. Procurement is important because it is easier to trace, has a big budgetary impact. You can show it immediately. It's the only one for which we have data for EU28. I mean, putting together subnational transfers, it's quite impossible. We simply do not have this kind of, of financial data at subnational level. We've been trying. I mean, I have a doctoral student who works on this, but I can't. I mean, I now have it from three different countries because I had three different students who worked together to look at, for instance, an extra budgetary fund and how extraordinarily particularistic they're distributed. We looked in Slovakia, Bulgaria, and Romania where from special funds, for instance, money for natural disasters go only to mayors who are in the government party. It's only them who are stricken by natural disasters, for instance, right? But putting this together for all EU28, it's, it's really difficult. And in countries where it's not a problem, where corruption is not a problem, it's difficult to convince somebody to work to, to retrieve this data. But of course, you know, one of my recommendations to which I care deeply about is to come up with this online public expenditure tracking systems, and then it's all gonna be out there. Invoices are digital anyway, and software exists. It's not so complicated. I mean, if, if you know, countries like Slovenia, Estonia, Latvia could put all their expenses out there so that everybody can see how much your hospital or your city hall or uh, your school actually spends on a monthly basis and track most invoices, then, you know, everyone can do it. And then it's really, really simple for us to just, you know, put up. In DigiWist, what we plan to do is to put the tools that Michi developed together with the data, because we're not going to analyze all this universe of data from EU28 or procurement. People may be interested or have special knowledge of sectors, of all tenders, or of everything else, and they're just going to use his ready-made apps there in order to, you know, to trace something, you know, let's say you suspect a company, or you suspect that it's more corruption in an area than another area, or less competition. And finally, to the, to the political will question, which is a great question. I mean, how does this change? And this is what my books looks at. At one of the policy papers that we put out there for the commission is actually a study on this. It's looking at the seven countries and how much and how, how did they change? You know, and the last chapter of the book is actually called From Critical Mass to Critical Mass, really asking how do you get to the majority or to whatever is needed uh, because definitely this cannot always be a gradual improvement. I mean, it's a gradual improvement where the problem is not that bad, where you have big institutional winners who stand to profit out of the status quo. Anti-corruption is not a win-win situation. 
right? So they will oppose it. They will fight back. We have, you know, any time an anti-corruption agency is successful, its boss is fired. Or you have to organize, uh, you know, in Romania, once at every six months, I have to return from Berlin to go to some rally to defend the head of this anti-corruption agency from not being sacked. It's been like this over the past, although he's also protected, now it's a woman, he's always protected by Brussels as well. But that's not enough. I mean, it has to be pressure from the bottom, it has to be outside pressure, and when all these conditions are not met and you have a very bad systemic situation, then really it is quite difficult to get there. But the roundabout way to get there, it's the one that I showed you through e-citizens and number of other empowerment tools. You know, they will develop and windows of opportunity exist in policy for every country. The important thing is to be ready with everything else in the moment when the window of opportunity will be there. It, I know it sounds dreadful for Ukraine, but, you know, it can be made. Just a one one minute addition. So yes, procurement is like one third of government spending. So that's that's one of the main reasons. And also, think about how attractive it is from a corruption perspective. It's like large contracts you can centralize, you can concentrate the corrupt rents really effectively. It's a highly technical field, both uh, legally and technically. So basically, hiding uh, uh, mismanagement of public funds is relatively easy. But on the other hand, there's a lot of transparency, a lot of data. So actually, this is a key area for uh, corrupt practices, but also really attractive from a research perspective. And then for the co causal story, yes, I mean, this is absolutely crucial problem. And then uh, we talk a lot about equilibria and uh, circular uh, virtues and vir virtuous circles. So yes, this is not necessarily easy to disentangle. But when we look at uh, uh, instruments and tools, that's, that's a lot of these clear-cut interventions after which you would, would like to see a difference. So we have a range of quantitative and qualitative tools for dealing with these causal stories, but the bottom line is that you have to create these cycles. Right, it's not just one intervention solving all your problems, but you have you have to kick in processes which are self-sustaining, and that's that's not going to be uh, easily captured by a simple regression or a bivariate uh, table. There was a question over there. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> uh, Professor Linson from the IMNRC New Pearl Network. Um, just a few short comments and question. Uh, I note that the meeting today is fighting corruption from headlines to real impact. I'm just wondering what's going to be the real impact of today's meeting on tomorrow. Um, yes, transparency uh, may be uh, one way to deal with corruption. So I was just wondering whether... Um, is the transparency register that transparent? Um, I don't know. Um, yes, corruption. Uh, yes, it is indeed a worldwide uh, concern. I mean, that requires, to my mind, in order to be uh, order, order to be appropriately managed, a new global governance infrastructure inviting collective citizen participation. But I mean, this is um, this global uh, challenge is not just. Um, doesn't concern just corruption, uh, um, biodiversity, migration, environment, energy, health issues, all these issues are global challenges, economy, finance. Uh, so there is, um, to my mind, there is a need really to get going and to create this uh, uh, new global governance infrastructure. And finally, well, um, yes, Alina, uh, this is, I, I apologize for being late, but I'm hopping all over the place. 
Um, uh, but when I came, you mentioned, yes, the need uh, to come up with a better instrument um, to deal with the corruption. I wonder whether corruption is not also, uh, well, basically an educational issue. Um, because, I mean, the world incompetence is, to my mind, quite catastrophic um, because of educational competence. The world hypocrisy is uh, quite catastrophic, to my mind, due to fragmentation. Perhaps hypocrisy is the most sustainable characteristic of our civilization. And the world inertia is catastrophic, largely due to the lobbies. Uh, but one devastating lobby is the educational lobby that is, in fact, pulling, pulling uh, everything, everything back. So, um, to my mind, um, I think there is uh, um, a grassroots uh, issue, a mindset issue. Uh, there is a need for a fundamental uh, mindset revolution that could lead to a um, fundamental education revolution. But to my mind, um, th there is a need to concentrate on education. Thank you. Thank you. There was a question over there. Uh, good afternoon, Elbena Kuyomjeva, Royal Holloway, University of London. I'm a practitioner with more than 14 years of experience in different countries worldwide, and I'm currently finalizing my PhD on European anti-corruption policies and the impact of the EU institutions on that. Uh, one of the problems, thank you very much for your presentation. It's, it's, I think it's one of the most useful pieces of um, academic research that I have been uh, reading recently. Uh, one of the problems as an anti-corruption EU advisor when we are exporting our anti-corruption standards abroad is that actually, from a legal point of view, EU really doesn't have legal standards that are applicable. We are always using UNCAC and uh, the Council of Europe conventions. And when you are mentioning the problems with trust and how the national governments are coping with corruption, you were talking that uh, in your model of control of corruption, one of the constraints are the normative constraints. How do you see the way out of this um, of this problematic um, situation that we are currently facing with EU because we have these huge discrepancies between level of corruption in Denmark and Greece, Bulgaria and Romania, for example. Do you believe that we can continue with strategy? We have quite some comprehensive strategy so far, but they don't have any enforcement effect. Unlike, um, as, uh, as the other speakers mentioned, Unlike other areas like competition, for example, EU doesn't have any enforcement capabilities when, we come, when it comes to anti-corruption. So do you think that creating a common legal uh, standard that can ensure equal level of integrity within EU member states can help us or it won't have effect? Thank you. And there was a final question over there. Yes, uh, Nico Keppens from DigiDevco, but speaking on my behalf, um, going back to earlier questions, but also a little bit provocative, uh, on the root causes of corruption. Who is really the corrupt? Who is really corrupting? Is it the richer trying to become richer, or is it often also the the poor guy who tries to survive? And this is then in the development uh, context that I ask this question. Um, so, is there some kind of uh, leanliness needed for people who? don't see other means to survive uh, to accept corruption. If I, if I may, we'll, uh, you can reply to these questions and make also final comments so we can go from uh, Mihoy backwards and have uh, the final word from uh, Alina. 
on this topic. Well, thank you very much again for the questions. They are uh, really great. I, I won't be able to comment on all of them, but uh, one particular one I would like to respond to is the common EU anti-corruption framework and the EU's uh, powers. I mean, if you look carefully into the definition of uh, corruption uh, uh, we brought up, it's a lot to do with open and fair competition for public resources. You don't need an anti-corruption directive to strike down anti-competitive behavior in public procurement or EU grants allocation, right? So I would really caution against pushing for yet another legal instrument. It's not about that. It's about actually enforcing those instruments which are not designed to be anti-corruption instruments, but what they are doing is really anti-corruption, open and fair access to public resources. And we have really strong EU powers there. I mean, you can look at a, a range of cases against, uh, you know, Hungary and Greece where actually uh, uh, anti-corruption, uh, uh, anti-competitive behavior was serving uh, high-level political favoritistic uh, goals. So just go after these restrictions on open access, and that, that will uh, do at least part of the trick. Yeah, pass on. Well, there's one specific question is, uh, is the EU lobby register really all that transparent? And I think uh, if, if you mean by that, do we have a full picture of lobbying that goes on in Brussels from the EU transparency register? The answer is clearly no. Uh, that's because it's a voluntary register. So, for example, law firms, uh, which uh, do an awful lot of lobbying in Brussels uh, for their clients. I did not only mean by that what she was saying. The actual way of the uh, transparency register is uh, Okay, I mean, maybe perhaps this is something for uh, a discussion over coffee. I mean, I think the, 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 the way the transparency register functions is also, I mean, there are no sanctions and the data is quality is terrible so I would say even within the constraints of the current register it's not very good but uh, that's that's uh, another discussion um, but you also mentioned the need for global governance inf uh, global governance infrastructure uh, and there may be a glimmer of hope there with the uh, endorsement of the uh, sustainable development goals in New York in 2015 which I think recognize uh, what you were saying, which is the interdependence of these issues of biodiversity, the environment, corruption. So for the first time in a, in a global uh, development framework, we, it's explicitly recognized in goal 16 uh, of, of, uh, of that framework that uh, there should be targets to reduce corruption, bribery, illicit financial flows. So that, that at least has, has been recognized uh, at the level of policy. Um, of course, uh, there shouldn't. Be, you know, there's no need for a common legal standard, and that's that's. I, I don't think that's the issue. We have enough conventions, we have enough laws, uh, we have enough institutions. Um, but that doesn't mean there isn't a role for a regulator like the EU in this. And the point I was trying to make in my presentation is that it, the EU has a, a large role to play still, even if it doesn't have enforcement powers, in uh, encouraging and, and opening up the kind of transparency. Uh, that uh, is needed by civil society to make a difference. So that bottom-up pressure can only come if people have the tools and the information uh, to, to, uh, to properly apply that pressure. Uh, and I think a very good example of this uh, beyond public procurement uh, is uh, opening up uh, not just public procurement data, but, but uh, all government contracting. So just make any government contract uh, available to public scrutiny. And there has been an experiment 
uh, in this in Slovakia uh, for five or six years now. And I think probably due to informal pressure from the EU as well, that has also been enforced on the Czech government. So we were seeing a, a burgeoning movement in open contracting. Uh, and finally, on the issue of uh, the survival strategy versus... Uh, I think I'll leave, uh, leave it to answer that one. <laughs> <laughs> Dodge the bullet. <laughs> Thank you. I think there is this general question actually here about uh, developed versus less developed context, which is, uh, which is a crucial question. So again, the argument that I make in my book is that corruption, it's all about power inequality. It's basically about distribution of public resources following the map of power in a country. So government is about privilege, and it has always been about privilege. Historically, it has evolved from less privilege to more equality, but it's only 20-something countries in the world where we can say you, you are close to a fair and equal distribution of public resources. right? And the more government becomes bigger government, the more the government does more, the more in resources for corruption also increase. So there are these two tendencies which are a bit contradictory. On one hand, countries become more plural and they liberalize and power inequality decreases, which is good for control of corruption historically. But on the other hand, states become bigger and bigger. And therefore, government claiming that it can solve education, it can solve health, it can solve a lot of things, actually gets a lot of resources from society. And you end up with this very nice tool of that World Bank used to do in sub-Saharan Africa, which is called Public Expenditure Tracking Survey, where we actually try to figure out how much of the money for the schools, which is earmarked from the schools in the budget actually reaches the school. You know, when they did this in Uganda, this is 10 years ago, I think there's been some improvement even there. You know, they were like 20%. And you only took the budget sheet and you followed the trail. Where should this money go, right? So this is more or less how, so government by default should be conceived as corrupt government and operating on the basis of favoritism. And then some people who don't have connections, they have to bribe to open access. Your question is very legitimate. This is how it works. So that's what I'm saying. Favoritism is most of it. It, then comes bribing, but what happens if you do not have the right connections and you are unable to bribe? Then you are actually a big, big loser out of this. And losers don't really have powers. Losers don't really change regimes. And this is why it's so difficult to fight corruption in severely poor countries. But the, I think that you know what we learn more and more from the from the few countries which progress is that you can do it. You know, and I give the examples of. Um, for instance, you know, uh, South Korea is, 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 uh, is a nice example. And you see that it's a very long historical cycle of virtuous circle, which starts indeed with more people in education. More people go into education because Americans, after the Second World War, do a land reform in in South Korea. Why can they do this radical land reform? Because the land had all been confiscated by the Japanese, but instead of giving it back to the former owners and creating, like in some Latin American states, big latifundia, they give it back more democratically. So in other words, they do what Achimoglu and Robinson would name correct the institutional uh, endowment you know, by design which is a very rare situation historically when you can do something like this. And all this new class, middle class landowning people, for the first time they send their children into education. And these are the children which rebel in 1968 in Korea. Uh, they put pressure into, for the first time, being admitted in civil service on the basis of merit because they needed some place to work. Right? And this is, you know, you see a virtual circle, but it's 
on quite a long scale. And yes, education matters, but it matters in a bit of a different sense than people expected. Education matters like Estonia. I give the case of Estonia. Estonia seems, you know, that I like to have the best conditions also in Eastern Europe because it's the only country which was nearly 100% literate by 1900. And if you know how much a country was literate by 1900, sadly, I can tell you that you can largely predict its, its uh, corruption today which shows how path-dependent this, this whole process, unfortunately, is. But this doesn't mean, I mean, but today in Europe, we're all 100% literate. All countries are 100% literate. So this doesn't make any difference. Improving PISA scores of a country would not reduce corruption, right? So what mattered in the case of Estonia is simply of having 100 years more of enlightened citizens putting demands on government for good governance. This is what mattered. Right? What can, how can you match this? Well, you can match this with, you know, if, even if you have a restricted number, with putting more demand. And I'll tell you something about myself, which Alessio nicely didn't mention, is that, you know, I'm a, a professor of governance, but I am also, I've been for many, many years, the head of all informal anti-corruption coalitions in Romania. When I started, we had this nice anti-corruption agency created by Brussels, but nobody actually sent any information to them. They just sat around in their nice offices with their nicer tools than anyone else for two, three years. You know, and when I started this web, web page, this watchdog portal, in the first year we probably had 1,000 people who sent some information to them, and I don't know how good it was. You know what the rate was of sending through the web page, which is a web page called Clean Romania, last year to the anti-corruption agency. Last year we had 140,000 people who denounced some cases of corruption. So this is, you know, just changed in four or five years. And it's not like everybody contributes it. Not 20 million contributed. Half million, you know, half Romania doesn't even vote. They don't care. They were lost in this process. But it's enough. It's enough. It built it up itself enough. Two governments fell because of corruption in the past two years alone. You know, and the people from this portal, from this web dog, are directly responsible from the fall in October. And I'll end with this, because it's a nice example of what three, four people can do, right? The deputy prime minister in Romania, who's notoriously corrupt, a general also, you know, with ties in the former regime and everything else. Big real estate owner, although he has, you know, been in the public sector all his life. He owned over 20 houses, real estate. I don't know about his offshores, but I'm sure I'll, I'll find out, you know. So it was complete outrage, right? And he was arranging everything, also in charge of a, of a secret service and anything else. But, you know, and we have been writing about him for many years unsuccessfully. Also a plagiarist. He was a doctor and creating other doctors. He made a doctor from the current, from the prime minister who was also found to be a plagiarist. So there were a serial plagiarists and imposters and, and crappy. And he has the bad luck last October when he was going around with his official luxurious uh, you know, escort in town. Everywhere he was going, he would take like this 10 cars escort, you know, so people hated him for that. And he has a bad luck, it's after 10 o'clock, it's raining, and somebody from the gas signals rather badly some works in downtown, and one of his motorcycles, they were running over 100 kilometers per hour in downtown Bucharest, falls into one of these pits left by the workers and dies. 
And we get together asking ourselves, you know, and a lot of discussion starts. It is his fault, it's not his fault. I mean, obviously, in no, in no criminal court of law, it would not be his fault. I mean, you can argue, why were you running? Why were you speeding? Where are you going after 10? What was the emergency? But, you know, our smart lawyer, the lawyer of this anti-corruption coalition, since we now have extensive anti-corruption legislation, looks at the legislation and he says, no, what we must do is actually to write to the anti-corruption agency, not to the normal prosecution, which is still very poor, but the anti-corruption agency works. Write to them and, in fact, denounce him for every time when he used this kind of official escort without the emergency being present. So he used it. He had 1,500 official escorts last year alone. Okay, And this we considered undue profit. And once you consider this undue profit, you can actually litigate on the basis of anti-corruption legislation. Right? And this guy is now in jail. No, he lost his position, his government fell, and the rest, I mean, of course, it was an understanding between prosecutors and us. We first wrote that they should go after him, and, you know, they sent us informally word, and they said, we really can't, that's not big political will. But the law is such in that if you really make a complaint, then it's mandatory for them to go after him. They said, why don't you make a written complaint, not just tell us how it should be done. Make a written complaint, and then we made the written complaint, and then they went after him. So it doesn't take so much, you know, but it takes a little bit. I mean, he could have won, and then we'd be in an embarrassing situation, but then, you know. Reminds me of the case of Al Capone being uh, trapped for his tax records uh, in Chicago rather than uh, for alcohol smuggling. I mean, if, if there is, uh, if there is uh, a, few, a few pearls of wisdom that I can distill from, from, this, from this panel, it is that, well, there is a positive note, which is uh, once you look at, uh, at these new indicators, some progress is being made. Uh, so the world, or at least some countries, are not doomed. It seems to me that another finding could be that it is more a step-by-step -step approach that we're looking for, and these vicious, uh, are, are fighting vicious and creating virtuous circles that you were talking about rather than uh, the headline uh, lawmaking and hoping that that will work. Uh, it seems to me that every country has its own specificities, but if I had to distill one finding or one message that, that you're trying to send to all, uh, seems to be the, the data availability and transparency point, uh, which seems to be where uh, these uh, uh, virtuous circles uh, can be rooted and can, uh, can start. We are already over time. I thank you for your uh, attention, time for coming, and I hope to see you soon again at Brugge. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Alina. Thank you.